Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. And I'm going to give you a moment to get there while they're lighting the candles. Ruth chapter 3. We've got two sermons left in this awesome book. And we'll be heading into Advent starting next Sunday. Can you believe it? I guess looking outside, we can believe it, can't we? Right? (laughs) Ruth chapter 3. The the title of this is interesting. The Midnight Meeting. Now, this is going to be a challenge for us because in our over-sexualized culture, we're going to be challenged to get our minds out of the gutter, okay? To get our minds out of the Because as we're reading about this midnight meeting, our first reaction is going to be to read into these events sex and scandal. We're going to be tempted to read that in because, you see, without a proper understanding of the culture and its customs, we're going to jump to some wrong conclusions about what happened during this midnight meeting. And so today's passage is rather challenging for that reason, but let's get through the challenge because it'll be worth it, because it is also very meaningful. So before we get into the midnight meeting, let's recap where we've been, because you may be showing up here for the first time and not know what's going on. We're in the book of Ruth, and the setting is Bethlehem, which again, at this time of year, especially gets our attention. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And it is the time period of the judges, a dark time in Israel's history where there was idolatry, immorality, and war. It was chaos. It was crime. It was a terrible time in Israel's history, and specifically here in the book of Ruth because there was also famine. There was a great struggle to find food. Ironically, at this particular time in Israel's history, there was no bread in the house of bread. And so it's in this setting that a man named Elimelech, His wife named Naomi and their sons Machlon and Kilion, they packed their belongings and they moved to a place called Moab in search of food. It was located on the east side of the Dead Sea, about a 50-mile journey from Bethlehem, and things did not go well for this family in Moab. As a matter of fact, the patriarch, Elimelech, he died. And then the sons who had grown up and married Moabite women They too died, leaving three grieving widows, Naomi and her two young Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now, it must be said that to to be a widow in any time, in any culture, is a devastating thing. But particularly in this culture, you you had no safety net. You, You had no social security. You had no insurance. You had no help. And so when it came time to having financial support, if you were a widow, you were in dire straits. And you were pretty much doomed to a life of poverty. And so the three widows... They packed up their few belongings, and they decided to head back to Bethlehem, where maybe, just maybe, there might be a distant relative or some old acquaintances that might have pity on these three grieving widows. But before they left Moab, Naomi gave her daughters-in-law an out. 
This is what she said to them. She said, you'll be better off if you stay here in Moab and seek new husbands for yourself in your homeland. These new husbands will be able to provide for you. Well, Orpah, one of the two daughters-in-law, she said, thank you very much. And she took Naomi up on the offer and decided to stay in Moab. But this character named Ruth, who the book is named after, she chose to stay with Naomi and make the trip back to Bethlehem. This is what she said, this beautiful passage, these verses. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, will be, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That is just a powerful statement of faithfulness and loyalty. And so Naomi and Ruth, they made that 50-mile track back to Bethlehem around the northernmost part of the Dead Sea, where their arrival during the barley harvest, and that's key to note, created quite a stir. Now, unfortunately, Naomi's grief and her suffering in Moab had taken a toll and changed her appearance so much that many didn't even recognize her, even saying, can that really be Naomi? To which she responded, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has made my life bitter. Well, after arriving in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth, they they needed food. They needed food. And as was the custom of the land, the poor were allowed to pick up the grain that the harvesters left behind on the ground. You know, the harvesters are doing their thing. They're getting the sheaves. And, you know, they might have just been a little bit sloppy and left some behind. And the poor were allowed to come from behind and to pick up the leftovers. It was backbreaking labor and potentially dangerous for a single woman. But it just so happened that, and I want to highlight that phrase, it just so happened that, as Christ followers, we know there's no such thing, right, as coincidence, as it just so happened that. We serve a sovereign God who works providentially and causes all things to work for good. But it just so happened that Ruth had been working in the fields of a man named Boaz, He was an upright man who was well thought of in Bethlehem. In fact, he was described in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, as a worthy man. A worthy man. That word worthy, it comes from the Hebrew gibor, which meant great and mighty and valiant. That gives us some insight into how Boaz was thought of in Bethlehem. It's interesting, that word gibor, it actually is used in the Old Testament to describe God. El gibor. Mighty God. The point is that Boaz was a man of great wealth and standing in Bethlehem. But as we saw by his actions in Ruth chapter 2, he was also a man of great character. A man of great character. Boaz demonstrated himself to be kind, to be compassionate, to be generous, to be righteous, to be a man of his word. Now file this away because it's going to be really important to our story today. Remember the kind of man that Boaz is. Well, Boaz took notice of Ruth as he's watching his harvesters and taking in all the things that are going on in his fields. He, he sees this poor woman who had been working so diligently but struggling to eke out a meager existence, and not only for herself but for her widowed mother-in-law. And that's really what got Boaz's attention is the fact that this woman cared so deeply for her mother-in-law. 
And Boaz had compassion upon her. He had compassion. He provided protection. He provided water. And he even invited her to join with him and the other harvesters at mealtime. He then ordered his men to intentionally, but I believe probably discreetly, drop, drop some of your stalks from your bundles to give Ruth some more to gather. And the result of all this was that Ruth did quite well in the fields, which certainly got Naomi's attention. Ruth would bring home these, these big bundles of, of grain, and Naomi's like, well, where did that come from? How were you able to get so much grain? At which point Ruth said she had been working in the fields of the super nice guy named Boaz, which brought a big smile to Naomi's face. Why? Because that name Boaz meant something to her. It just so happened, there it is again, that this Boaz was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. He was a family member. And that's going to be a key element in our text today. Well, Ruth continued to go out and gather grain in Boaz's field, distinguishing herself all the more as a hard worker and a woman of great character, which brings us to Ruth chapter 3. Are you with me? All right, here we go. Ruth chapter 3 breaks down into three main sections, preparation, presentation, and proclamation. So let's look first of all at Ruth's preparation in verse number 1. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So here's the thing. Ever since Naomi found out about Boaz, this relative of her deceased husband, her wheels had been turning. She's plotting. She's planning. You know, her original plan in returning to Bethlehem was essentially for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to take care of both of them as they tried to eke out an existence as best they could. But now the plan has changed for Naomi. She has found this guy Boaz... And now Naomi has a matchmaking plan. Much like in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody get into Fiddler on the Roof a little bit? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, right? You see, in the Jewish culture, marriages were arranged. And Naomi wanted to get busy arranging a marriage of Ruth to Boaz. Now again, why Boaz? Because of something in the Mosaic law known as leverate marriage. Leverate marriage. Leverate specifically means husband's brother. Husband's brother. And here's the thing. The nearest unmarried male relative would marry a widow so that she might not be left destitute. And this male was known as the kinsman redeemer in Hebrew, Goel. All right, so in Leverate marriage, the husband's brother, the nearest unmarried male relative, would marry a widow so that she might not be left destitute. destitute. This male was known as the kinsman redeemer in Hebrew, the Goel. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. So if we were to go back a few verses to Ruth chapter 2, this is why Naomi said this. She said, this man Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. And the Goel, or the redeemer, had five main responsibilities in leverate marriage. See which of these would relate to Ruth and to Naomi. Number one would be to avenge the death of a murdered relative. 
that one doesn't really seem to fit here. That wasn't the case with Elimelech. Number two would be to marry a childless widow of a deceased brother. Now that does fit, right? That does fit. Number three, to buy back family land that had been sold. And I believe that that certainly is a factor here in our story of Ruth. Number four, buy back a family member who had been sold as a slave. That one does not seem to be in play here. But number five, to look after needy and helpless members of the family? Absolutely. You can, you can see why Naomi would have been excited about the prospect of Boaz being the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, for her and for Ruth. But one question I had, I don't know if this has occurred to you at all, why doesn't Naomi marry Boaz? Why, did, you know, why is it Ruth that we're plotting to marry Boaz? Why not Naomi? I mean, Naomi is Elimelech's widow, not Ruth. And as we'll see later, she's actually more compatible in age with Boaz than Ruth is. So why doesn't she marry the kinsman redeemer? Well, I think the answer probably, and I say probably, lies in the fact that likely Naomi must have been past childbearing age. And one of the key purposes in Leverate marriage is to carry on the family name. And so this could not happen through Naomi, again, probably, but it could happen through Ruth, who was much younger. And so Naomi begins to lay out her plan for Ruth in the second half of verse three, or verse 2, which says, See how Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now remember, Naomi and Ruth show up in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, the season which is about a month long. And so it just so happens that Ruth had been working in Boaz's fields for about four weeks. And as the barley was harvested, it needed to be winnowed, which refers to the process of separating the grain from the chaff. Typically, the way this was done is in the late afternoon, when the Mediterranean winds would prevail out of the west, the grain would be tossed into the air. And the chaff would blow away, and the grain, which was much heavier, would come down and would settle. It would remain. Naomi knows that this is where Boaz will be, at the threshing floor. And so when she instructs Ruth in verse 3, this is where things get a little exciting. Naomi says to Ruth, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Again, here's where we need to be reminded, get your mind out of the gutter and not read into this text through the lens of our sex-crazed culture, technically, what's really going on here is a legal proceeding and not a romantic encounter. So here's the deal. During the process of winnowing, Boaz would be sleeping on the threshing floor. Why? To protect his investment, to protect his grain, his barley from robbers. So he's going to camp out there. Naomi knows it. She instructs Ruth to do several things. First of all, Ruth, wash and anoint yourself. You've been working in the field all day, okay? You kind of stink, all right? So go wash yourself, make yourself presentable. Secondly, wait until he has finished eating and drinking, which simply means he's been working hard all day. Make sure he is full and settled in for the night. And so far we can follow. We relate to this. But this third one, uncover his feet and lie down. 
here's where things might seem to get a little scandalous, but not really. For you see, in that culture, it was not the job of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, to approach a widow with an invitation to marriage. It was, in fact, the job of the widow to approach the kinsman redeemer and to claim her legal right. And the way in which this was done, again, it's as strange to us, was for the widow to put herself at the feet of the kinsman redeemer. It was an expression of humility, of submission, but also of claiming her rightful place under the law of leverate marriage. I know it's weird to us, it's strange, but I'm sure there's plenty in our day that would seem weird to them. Am I right? Elon Musk, Taylor Swift, FTX, these would be all things they're like, you people are weird, okay? The point is that there is nothing sexual or inappropriate going on here. This is a widow playing by the rules and claiming her kinsman redeemer. This is Naomi's master plan and Ruth's preparation. So we go on to the next section, section two, which is the presentation in verse six. The presentation. Let's look at verse six. It says, So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now again, left to ourselves, our minds probably jump to some kind of an image of Ruth and Boaz being in bed together side by side. But in actuality, where is she? At his feet. And the text will go on to emphasize this position at his feet actually three different times to make sure there's no suspicion of impropriety. By the way, um, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the Bible is not in any way squeamish about pointing out sexual immorality. Am I right? So if anything inappropriate happened here, the Bible would be very blunt about it, but it is not because it did not take place in that fashion. The text goes on to explain in verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay where? At his feet. And he said, who are you? Why was Boaz startled? Well, re remember, he's sleeping at the threshing floor for what purpose? To protect his grain against intruders. And sure enough, there is an intruder, right? But not the kind that he anticipated, um, this was a female intruder, not interested in his grain, but in his marriage and matrimony. He must have thought initially that he was dreaming, but this was no dream. For Ruth says in the second half of verse 9, she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You know, throughout Scripture, this image of spreading wings communicates provision and protection. I love Psalm 91.4, and I like this image too, by the way. Um, he will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. So again, in the scriptures, this whole idea of covering someone with your wings or your feathers means provision and protection. This is the role of God in the life of his people, covering them, protecting them, providing for them as a mother bird cares for her young. And it is the role of the kinsman redeemer in marrying a widow. 
And interestingly, back in chapter 2, this is, this is pretty cool actually, Boaz had complimented Ruth for coming to Bethlehem and thus coming under God's wings. Ruth 2.12, this is Boaz speaking. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Ruth speaks this back to Boaz by saying that as the kinsman redeemer, Boaz would be a human expression of these divine wings as he fulfills the role of kinsman redeemer under the law of leverate marriage. Well, put yourself in Ruth's sandals for a minute. She's taken a bold risk, hasn't she? Can you imagine how nervous? The law is on her side, but who knows how Boaz will respond. But we find out in verse 10. Boaz said, Oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. Now, what was the first kindness that Boaz attributes to Ruth? What was he talking about? The first kindness is the way that Ruth lived out loyalty and care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Again, that was something that greatly impressed Boaz. It got his attention. It really stood out to him. What's the second kindness that Boaz attributes to Ruth? Well, as we said earlier, apparently there's an age gap between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz would seem to be significantly older, and so he probably just assumed that Ruth would pursue a younger man instead, but she did not. She was much more motivated by and attracted to the character of this man, who goes on to say in verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, we saw earlier that Boaz was a worthy man. Here, Ruth is a worthy woman. There are two different Hebrew words. Here, the Hebrew word is kail, which simply means a woman of great worth, an excellent woman. You might recall in Proverbs 31, an excellent kail wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent, that same word, wife, is the crown of her husband. She who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. You see, the same word, kail, is used here in Proverbs as it was in Boaz's description of Ruth. She's great wife material. And so Naomi's plan is coming together perfectly, isn't it? Or is it? Because Boaz breaks some tough news to Ruth in verse 12. Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So the good news. Hey, Boaz is 100% on board with Naomi's plan. He's excited about the prospect of marrying Ruth. The bad news, legally, someone else has the right of first refusal. Naomi has missed the fact, now I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional, we don't know, that Elimelech had a relative closer than Boaz, and legally he should be the one to marry Ruth. 
Boaz, being the man of character that he is, will not cut corners. He will not go against the law. He will not take what does not belong to him. Rather, he will approach the closer relative with the invitation to marry Ruth. And if he refuses, Boaz will marry Ruth. But if he accepts, there will be no marriage between Boaz and Ruth. So that is section two of the passage. It is the presentation. Next, we look at the proclamation beginning in verse 14, where Ruth reports back to Naomi. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Now, how much is six measures of barley? We have no idea. Um, We're not sure. Some translations insert the word ephah, which was an ancient measurement into the text, but this is unlikely because if that were the case, six ephahs would be 200 pounds of grain. Now, I know that Ruth was a physically strong woman, but I don't believe she was that strong. But at any rate, we know that Boaz gave a very generous gift to Ruth of grain. Probably had multiple purposes. Um, It could have been, number one, the payment of the bridal price, as was the custom of the day. Number two, it, it could have been a message for Naomi to say, good plan. And uh, everything is coming together as you had hoped. Number three, it could have been a cover for Ruth as she leaves. You know, so if anybody wondered, what's she doing there? What's that all about? She leaves carrying grain, and that could be an explanation. Or number four, a simple gift to Ruth out of Boaz's kindness. Maybe um, it's very tangibly his way of saying, I do. But I can't say I do yet because there are some technicalities that have to be um, considered. Well, how would Naomi respond to the news of the midnight meeting and to the gift of grain? We find out in verse 16. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, she said, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? Now, it's interesting. I think in the, in the Hebrew, it's literally, what is your name? It's like, well, why would she ask that? And I think potentially the reason for that literal rendering of what is your name is, is your name going to change? Or is it going to stay the same? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, in regard to Naomi, that ought to ring a bell for us. Do you remember what Naomi said when she arrived in Bethlehem? She said this back in Ruth 121. This was when Naomi is bitter, and she's sad, and she's very depressed. She says, I went away full... And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That certainly has changed, hasn't it? In chapter 2, Ruth returned home with a bunch of grain from Boaz when she was gleaning in the fields. Now in chapter 3, Ruth returns home from the threshing floor with an even greater load of grain from Boaz. There is no emptiness in Naomi's home anymore. Well, what should Ruth do next? Naomi gives her more instruction in verse 18 as the chapter concludes. Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest 
but will settle the matter today. Oh, wait. What, can you imagine what's going on in Ruth's mind? Will she get to marry the mighty man Boaz? Or will she have to end up marrying the mystery man that she has never met? The one who was closer in relation to Elimelech. Well, we'll have to wait until next week to find out. But now let's talk about application and answer the question, how should we then live? I found it was hard to narrow it down. There were so many practical things to see in in this passage that relates to us, but I, I narrowed it down to these three. Number one, pursue a life of Boaz and Ruth-like integrity. Pursue a life of Ruth and Boaz-like integrity. It's interesting, as we see all of these events played out, they were both above reproach. They're both known for their character and both demonstrated their character by how they acted in that midnight meeting in the dark when no one else was watching, no one else would know. They acted in purity toward one another and toward the Lord. There was no compromise. There were no shortcuts. And because Boaz was known for his integrity, I think that's why Naomi felt that she could entrust her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to him even at the threshing floor, that Boaz would respond righteously. Young people who maybe are looking for a spouse, will one day look for a spouse, find you a Boaz and find you a Ruth. And I love one of the images that I heard many years ago was run hard after Jesus as hard as you can and then look around and see whose else is running at that same pace. And that's the kind of person that you want to marry. Good chance that such a person would be a great, great match. So pursue a life of Boaz and Ruth-like integrity. Um, Boy, that's hard to find in this day and age, isn't it? We treat the truth. We treat our word. We treat our ethics and our morality so loosely. And God's word calls us to a standard of holiness We need to rediscover the significance, the meaning of that word holiness, holy unto the Lord. You must be holy because I am holy, God says. Does holiness in any way describe your life and your character? Number two, take bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risks. Take bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risk. I I had you play that um, mind game earlier. Imagine that you're Ruth showing up at the threshing floor to surprise Boaz, approaching this man to uncover his feet. Can you imagine how her heart must have been pounding? And yet, in spite of all the nervousness, the anxiety, putting herself out there, She took that bold step, the spirit-led, faith-filled risk. And as we read the scriptures, we see that this, in fact, is the normal Christian life. This is what it's supposed to look like. Give me a hero of the faith that you read about in the scriptures, and I'll show you a person who took bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risks. 
That's what it's about, following Jesus. And it's tempting for us in this cultural moment to want to hunker down in a comfortable spiritual cocoon and live defensively until Jesus returns. To become isolated, to become comfortable, and to just say, we're just going to wait until Jesus returns. That is not God's way. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. What bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risk is God calling you to take? And if you can't identify something, well, maybe it's high time that you spent some unhurried time with God listening for his voice to find out what that next bold, risky step of faith is. And then church, what bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risk or risks is God calling us to take? This is not a time for the church to play defense. This is a time for us to play offense. We are one day closer to the return of Jesus, are we not? One week closer than last week, one month than last month. And there are multitudes in our community and certainly in our world who are going to hell because they don't know Jesus. We have a lot of work to do, and it is not a time for us to sit idly by, to get comfortable, to get cozy, and to play defense, and to just wait it out until Jesus returns. May we, as a church, take bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risks. And last point of application, place yourself under the protective wings of God. I love this image. Place yourself under the protective wings of God. That image I showed earlier, I want to show it again just because I love it. This protective shield is for God's children. For those who seek him and abide in him. Those who have turned, as we saw and heard in the baptisms today, those who have turned from their sins and turned to Jesus alone for forgiveness. I ask you, is this you? Do you find yourself under God's protective wing as his child? If it is not you, oh, I plead with you that today would be the day of salvation. And if you have any question about that whatsoever, would you please come see me? I would love to sit down with you and in an unhurried fashion have conversation with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to know him in this way, this manner right here. Pursue a life of Boaz and Ruth-like integrity. Take bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risks and place yourself under the protective wings of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the the beauty of your word, for the fact that it talks about real people, the good, the bad, the ugly, their challenges, their failures, their pain, their hardship, but the constant in the midst of it all is you, that you are on the throne and that you are at work. God, would you renew our trust in that truth this morning, that regardless of what is happening all around us and our feeble human interpretations of it, that we have a trustworthy God who is worthy of us absolutely 100% putting all our faith in, all our dependence upon you. God, may we live out the truths that we've talked about today. May we be a church God, who takes those bold, spirit-led, faith-filled risks, just as Ruth did. 
And not to spoil the uh, end of the story, but we're going to see exactly how those bold, faith-filled steps of faith, how those paid off in a great and mighty way. Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity in just a few moments for us to reflect on the past, the present, and the future of First Baptist Church for the lunch that we're going to share together. And I would take this opportunity even right now just to pray blessing over the lunch and our fellowship and our business. So we commit to this to you today in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.